this thing here. All right. So let's see. I'm going to turn this on. All right. Everybody hear me? Give me a quick thumbs up. Nice. <laughs> um, okay. So Ephesians 2, let's, uh, I need to pray again because this, this continues chapter 1, which is notoriously hard to teach and preach through. Um, so let's pray for the grace of God to come and be with us in our time in the Word. Lord, thank you for your Word. Thank you for this letter of uh, Ephesians. And Lord, we continually ask for your help, uh, Lord, for, for the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you uh, to come on us as we go through this chapter. And we thank you for that. Uh, Lord, may we be drawn closer to yourself uh, during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right. Chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So chapter 2 is really a bad chapter break. Um, he's continuing this thought of the power at the end of his prayer, the power of the resurrection, that he worked in Christ. Which, by the way, I didn't, I didn't talk about that much last week. Um, when he says in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, there is uh, that he worked in Christ. There's about six very powerful words there. Um, and it's like, if you read it in Greek, it's like hyper, mega, ultra, all these prefixes on the words. But what he's saying is, it's, it's immeasurable greatness of power. Right? And then he's going to continue the thought by saying that he seated him at his right hand, he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above, and then he's going to rattle off an, another series of words, uh, like almost synonyms for authority or power. All rule and authority and power and dominion. All right? So it's like he has triumphed, 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 triumphed over every power, 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 power. <laughs> That's really what he's saying. I mean, this is a this is a hyperbolic statement uh, to the extreme. Uh, but it's the one case in which hyperbole is not hyperbole. Hyperbole means overstatement, but it's impossible to overstate the power of God. And so try as he might, uh, Paul, he, he goes to, to extreme uh, verbal lengths to try and describe the power of God that worked in the resurrection. Um, and we're left with just this string of, of words. Uh, one of them, one of the words is literally hyperbolic. <laughs> That's what, it's, it's the, the Greek word behind our word, hyperbolic. But anyway, he gets, he gets done with this right after he finishes describing the power and then the triumph over rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he's off on a, um, it's not a tangent, but he has lost himself in trying to describe the power of God. And then in chapter 2, he comes back to finish the thought that you would know the power that he worked in Christ. 
when he raised him and seated him. Okay? Because this is what he says he did to us. Raised us and seated us. So, and you means, yes, he worked the power in Christ when he raised him from the dead, but he works that power in you, too. And you, you are included in this working of great power and and triumph. All right? So, as we dive into chapter 2, we're finishing that thought of the most incredible, stupendous, terrific, just get out the thesaurus power. Um, It works in you too. And you. All right? Um, The King James actually uh, gets this idea across. It says, and you hath he quickened. And you he hath raised. They they fill that in. that's not in the text, but they fill that in. And if you have a King James and if you read it, anything in italics is kind of supplied for clarification. That way you can know like what's not actually in the text. It's kind of handy. Uh, but, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Okay? Um, I want to I just set a backdrop here so that as we work through it, we can kind of come back to this backdrop. And it's the backdrop of what would have been the definitive working of power up to that point before Christ for a Jewish person, the definitive display of God's triumph over his enemies was the Exodus. It was uh, Exodus 15. I will sing unto the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. Right? This was continually God's triumph over Pharaoh, his tenfold triumph in the plagues. He was dismantling every ruler, every power, every authority, every god, every name that, w- that, w- that you could name. Totally and systematically dismantling every one of them and then bringing his people out and burying Pharaoh, who was the representative of all rule and power and authority and dominion burying him in the sea with all of his host, okay? And so have that triumph in in the back of your mind. Paul is using language that would have been reserved to describe the triumph of the Exodus, okay? But now God's outdone himself in raising Jesus from the dead and you, okay? The other thing I want to point out is that after the Exodus... What, what then happens? God brings his people through the sea, triumphs gloriously. Then what? He leads them to the mountain. He enters into covenant with them. Or really, he renews the covenant with, with Abraham, but he enters into a new kind of covenant, which is the covenant of the law. He gives them the law, and he also gives them instructions for building the tabernacle. And here, it's no mistake that in this in this now triumph of Jesus Christ, triumph of the Father over the powers of darkness in, in raising Jesus from the dead, that now he's going to go on to discuss who's, who's the actual people of God. What is the nation that has been delivered from the power of death? It's no longer defined by Torah and tabernacle in the Exodus sense. It's defined by a new kind of, of body. Okay, So again, like I said last week, we can never underestimate how much the story of the Old Testament was just part of the fabric of Paul's being, okay? He was, he was steeped in it. And uh, so, 
You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So just like there was no hope for the Israelites in Egypt, and they were being uh, complete, all of their freedoms had been sapped away from them by the desires of their taskmasters. Okay? Their taskmasters, whatever they said, they had to do. And that is our life in as we walk according to the the uh, the course of this world the ESV says but that's really something like the the spirit of the age okay walked following the course of this world and walk just means um walk is a is a is a is a like an old testament word uh that carries over into the new testament it just means live like live your life out uh walking means live your life out uh God calls Abraham and he says, walk before me. When we talk about a walk with God, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about living. It's, it's the, the totality of our life is our walk. We used to walk in the realm of the prince of the power of the air. Okay, What Pharaoh was to the Israelites in, in Old Testament. We have a Pharaoh and it's the prince of the power of the air. It's the kingdom of darkness which uh, is, is the enemy that, that God has triumphed over in raising Jesus from the dead. We, among whom, so the, 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 the regent of this, of this power of this realm that we walk in is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now he's saying something pretty radical there if you are a Jew and you're listening, and he's addressing them all right now, okay? He's going to get into the Jew and Gentile thing in the last part of the chapter, but he's saying, listen, everybody, and just like he does in Romans, he says there's no difference, Jew and Greek, Guess what? We are all have sinned. You Jews are not off the hook anymore because of the covenants and the promise. You're not off the hook anymore. You're not in any less need of grace or mercy than your, uh, your Gentile brethren. We were all, we all used to live and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So that's a pretty radical thing too to say to a Jew that you were just like the rest of, of everybody else. Because right? what would a Jew pride themselves? We're the chosen people. Okay? And Paul's saying, well, in terms of sin, you're just like everybody else. In terms of a need for grace, you're just like everybody else. That election is because of God, not you. And so you can't claim this election to get you off of any kind of hook if you are not obedient, okay? The sons of disobedience, he says. How much of the Old Testament, how much of the Pentateuch boils down to, are you going to obey God or not? All of the blessings of the law are reserved for those who obey God. And all of the curses of the law are reserved for those who disobey God. And here Paul is saying, listen, covenant or not, if you're disobedient, 
You are a child of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God. Okay? So, verse 1, and you. And verse 4, but God. It's a great transition. But God. There are a few great but gods in Scripture, and this is one of them. Uh, One of them is in Genesis 5. It's not but God, but it's but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Do you know that God loves you with love? (laughs) He loves you with great love. And he is rich in mercy. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, right? God heard the cries of his people in Egypt and he was preparing an exit for them while they were still buried in slavery, in total bondage, completely helpless. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And and saved, we've got to hear, especially in Paul, Whenever you hear saved, you need to hear delivered, deliverance, and that's Exodus language, okay? Moses was the deliverer of God's people. God is the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt. When we hear salvation, we should hear delivered from the land of Egypt, if we're thinking in terms of all of Scripture. Salvation is an Old Testament word. By grace we have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him. Now, these are interesting words in Greek because they're, they're, Paul makes them up. He, it's raised and seated, but he tacks on a, a with prefix. So it's like a, a, he makes up a word, raised with, seated with. Okay, he's trying to express uh, really, how how closely associated we are. If we are in Christ, he's trying to describe that. We're with him. And what's true of Christ is true of us. We are raised and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Okay? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you think Paul is pretty excited about grace? You could go through and do a study, you know, maybe this week as you're going through. Um, look at all the places where he mentions grace. I mean, he opens up the letter and he says, grace and peace, which just sounds like a normal salutation. Um, but then you, you just keep coming back to those words through the whole letter. He never quite gets away from never He never quite gets away from them. Grace and peace. He talks about grace, grace, grace. And he talks about peace, peace, peace all through the whole thing. So even in his greeting, he was saying grace and peace. Um, For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And, um, you know, obviously this does mean, yes, you can't work your way into salvation. Um, But when Paul says it's not based on works, what he's really talking about is that the the membership in in God's covenant family is no longer based on 
these external markers, i.e. circumcision, or the possession of Torah, or anything else that Jewish people would, would use to identify themselves and, and separate themselves um, from the Gentiles. So he's saying, it's listen, you are saved, all of you. Remember, he's talking about all of them at this point. He's going to get into the Jew-Gentile thing here in a second, but he's saying, everybody, it's grace. Okay, so I think the people that probably most needed to hear that were the Jews, who would look to circumcision, Torah, temple, as their proof of salvation. And he says, no, 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 it's not, it's not those things. It's the grace of the God who gave you those things. Go behind all of those things. This is the God that brought you out of Egypt. Why did he do it? Because of grace. And because it's because of grace that he not only wants to give you, but he wants to give to the world. And this is why you're chosen. It's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, we've gone from walking in the realm of darkness and the passions of the flesh, children of wrath, and now we walk in good works in imitation of Christ, and we are in the realm of grace and love. Um, so it, it'd be good to underline, if you, if you underline in your Bible. If not, I'm not going to make you uh, underline in your Bible. But here in, these, in verses 8 through 10, by grace, through faith, for good works. That's it. It's by grace. God, God initiates. God makes it happen. Through faith, we believe him, we trust him, we obey him. And the result of that, and really the reason for it, right? Back in chapter 1, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. By grace, through faith, for Good works. God has, God has an amazing way of life that he has prepared for us. And he has now shown us and given us everything we need for life and godliness in him. Uh, if we will come and by faith uh, receive entrance into the very life of Jesus. All right, so this is sort of his Romans 3 moment where it's, listen, all have sinned, and all are in need of grace. And now he's going to get into um, the Jew and Gentile difference. And this really is a big part of the letter, uh, and we can learn a lot from it. Therefore, remember that at, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh... So I really believe that first part, uh, while, while addressed to everyone, was probably speaking the most loudly to the Jews. And Paul, Paul knew that, which is why he has to come later and say, all right, now listen, you Gentiles. And he always does this, right? He'll, he'll, he'll deal with the Jews. And if you read Romans, he does this too. He'll deal with the Jews. And then he'll say, but, but listen, you Gentiles, yes, God loves you. Yes, God wants to save you. But you don't look down on the Jews, right? He, he's not neglecting his people. He loves his people. 
Okay, and Paul is always quick to underline that. Therefore, remember at one time that you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Remember, uh, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Don't forget it. God has opened his family to you. You are, you're adopted, you're full heirs, but there was a time when there was no hope for you. And we can never forget that. Having no hope without God in the world, but now in Messiah, Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, what's the dividing wall of hostility? That is the outward markers, the things that Jews would separate themselves were distinct, right? Which, I mean, God wants his people to be distinct from the world. Okay, so that's a good thing. But he's saying, now, listen, there's a new, there's a new definition of what, what's distinguished, uh, the way that the people of God are distinguished. So he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And to make a long discussion short, right, obviously Jesus did not come to, uh, as he says, to uh, do away with the law. He came to fulfill it. So when it says abolish the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, what he's talking about is, it is, it is now no longer Torah that determines who's the, who are the people of God and who aren't. It's the Spirit. It is Messiah himself has come, which is what Torah was always pointing to for those who could see it. That he might create in himself one new man. And here we're back even beyond the, the election of Abraham and back beyond the Exodus, we are back to Adam himself. We're back to humanity, the, the, the fountainhead of humanity. It has started over in Christ. What it means to be human now begins with Jesus. Okay? One new man. I think a good word there would be one new humanity. Okay? Because that kind of gives you the scope of what we're talking about. Adam is the father of humanity Jesus is the father of the new humanity, the fulfilled humanity. In place of the two. So God never wanted there to remain two kinds of people. It was always his plan. And as we get further down in the letter, Paul's going to underscore the fact that this was the plan that was hidden for ages. People didn't understand this. Messiah was a mystery. There were glimpses and and glimmers here and there. But now the cover has been pulled off and we see Jesus. We see the plan that was hidden for ages. And he's going to get really excited about the fact that he, Paul, was entrusted with this message to go and deliver to the Gentiles. Uh, But that's chapter 3. He came, uh, so he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Okay, so the cross uh, brings Jews and Gentiles together, but the cross, it deals with the sin of the world, 
And it also deals with the disobedience of Israel all in one. Okay? In the cross, all of sin was dealt with. So that it, it is now the cross that enables God to be gracious. Okay, so this really shows us the cost of grace and the cost of peace. It is the very life of, of the Son of God. He killed the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. How do you get to God? You don't go through the Jewish system anymore. Anyone who gets to God comes to him through the Spirit. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Again, this adoption, this full rights, full inheritance of adoption comes back. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So he's talked a little bit about Torah, a little bit about how Torah is no longer the, the marker, and guess what? There's a new definition of temple, a new dwelling place for God. All right, so these are the things that were established in Exodus after they came out of the Red Sea, Torah and temple, and now how we have a, a new definition of each of those. And we're building, just like he made one new man in Christ, he's founding the new temple, the better temple, on Christ built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Okay? And there's some discussion as to whether... So apostles is pretty clear. In, in Revelation, we have the names of the 12 apostles on the, on the cornerstones, or on the, on the foundation stones of the temple in, in his vision. We have the names of the 12 apostles. It's pretty clear who that is. Prophets, some people think that that means the Old Testament prophets kind of like the John the Baptist was the last in the line of, and then, and then the apostles. Um, some people mean, think that this means New Testament prophets. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how much it matters either way, other than to say that um, there's definitely, a, Jesus was very clear that we were to build on what he entrusted his apostles with, their teaching, right? Namely, I mean, this letter is, is part of that but the Gospels and uh, a lot of what, what we build the church from, build our lives from, have to do with Christ as he, as he is delivered to us, as he is explained to us by the apostles. Um, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. I I think that this is church universal. But you also, you particularly, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Spirit is at work in that universal scale, but also in the local, in, in the particular it's the Spirit building you together. And as he goes through the letter, I think that kind of proves itself. How he is, he's showing how the temple is to be built. How the tabernacle is to be constructed. Not with fabrics and materials, but with attitudes and re- relational words and relational instruction. Okay, 
This is the new temple. And just like God is meticulous about the way that the tabernacle was to be constructed, I mean, a big part of Exodus had to do with the uh, accumulation of materials and how those materials fit together. Well, that's us. That's our lives. And that's our relationships, the way we intersect, the way that we, um, the way that we relate to one another, the way that we are placed and gathered together in, in bodies of believers. This is the tabernacle of God. We are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All right. So, um, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is here in, uh, let's see, here at the end, right? As the way that the temple is built together. But there was another one. Uh, It's the one Spirit that we have access to the Father through. Okay, everyone who would come to the Father comes in the same way. Everyone who would relate to God relates in the same way, and it's all through one Spirit. Just as Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. No one gets in in another way. Right? The way we relate to God is by the Spirit. Okay? So we're building out a pretty comprehensive uh, portrait of the Holy Spirit here, just in these first two chapters of, of Ephesians. Last week we talked about how it's the spirit of sonship, okay? And how um, it's the spirit of wisdom and insight, or ri- wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. And this week we're talking about it's, it's the one access point. The Holy Spirit is the one access point to the Father um, in keeping with Jesus' words that he was the way to the Father. If you see me, You've seen the Father, and um, how it is a spiritual dwelling place for God. And, and it is by the Spirit and in the Spirit that believers, individuals, and communities are built together into a, into a place where God can come and dwell. Um, so the building of the church happens ultimately in the Spirit. It doesn't mean that, that the church isn't visible, okay? It doesn't mean that it's only in the Spirit. It means that the essential work of building the, the, the physical uh, manifestation of the church, of the body of Christ, is, is the reality of it exists in the spiritual realm, okay? Um, all right, so yeah, there, that's, that's where we are, and we're going to go through chapter 3 next week. Um, another big chapter that he has to pray for at the end. Uh, but remember, one through three is the is the teaching, the laying down of I would call it doctrine, even though that word is kind of used in lots of different ways uh, these days. But chapters one through three are the doctrine, and uh, chapters four through six are the application, if you want to call it that, uh, the way that it that it looks. Okay. You can't have the last half without the first half, and you can't just stay in the first half without going on to the last half, okay? By grace, through faith, for good works. Everything in Paul, you know, we, we are the ones that like to, well, spiritual things are over here, physical things, worldly things are over here. There's no division in Paul. We are all, we, are, we have bodies, we have minds, we have spirits, and it's by the Spirit that we relate to God, but it's never supposed to be only Spirit, okay? 
God is very much interested in what we do, how we walk in the flesh, how we walk in our bodies. Um, not obeying the passions of our flesh, but walking according to the will of God. Um, so a couple things I want to underline, uh, maybe as, as more application points for us. Uh, the first one is just the idea of grace. Um, we do a lot of, just because of the, the theological climate in, in America and in kind of the evangelical church, we end up having to, and by we, I mean anyone who teaches the Bible, we end up having to do a lot of, I think, overcorrection because grace is often used as an excuse or in, in terms of, in Jude, he says, uh, the grace of, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Okay, so there is a real need to kind of stand against the licentiousness and, and the license to sin that grace can become in certain presentations of the gospel. Um, but we also have to be on guard to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. It is grace. And grace is an amazing thing. And so much... Uh, it, well, everything in our life comes back to grace. We are saved by grace. It's God's initiative. We love him because he first loved us. And everything that we are called to do begins and ends in the grace of God. It is by the grace of God that we have our being, that, we don't, that our molecules don't just disintegrate right now. He is rich in mercy, and he desires relationship with us. Um... And so I, I do think that we need to, to come back, and, and this is a perfect time, as we're in this chapter. Look at it, look at grace and, and really and really receive grace. God is a gracious God, and He is long suffering, He is rich in mercy, and He loves us with great love. Uh, and just let that refresh our souls. Yeah, we're we're not, you know, we, we believe that um that that's not an excuse for sin. And we believe that, that you shouldn't take that and use it as, as uh, you know, exercise your freedoms and by the grace of God and all that stuff. But let's just, you know, receive the grace of God and really rejoice in it. Um, and that should be actually when, you know, when we gather weekly and we take the body and the blood and we remember Jesus, that really should be a big part of it. Remembering the grace of God and uh, the great love with which he loved us, namely in, in, in allowing his body to be broken, his blood to be shed for us. So by grace is an important thing. We are saved, we are delivered by the grace of God. It's, it's undeserved favor. It's undeserved favor. And I think sometimes when we come against the more licentious views of grace, um we can start to develop a little bit of a, of a pharisaical mindset where, well, God's gracious to me because I know that uh, grace is not a license for sin. <laughs> He's gracious to other people that use it as a license for sin too, just as gracious as he is to you. So we can kind of get in this, this elitist mindset even in the way that we understand grace. 
and I don't know if this makes sense to anyone. Maybe this is just me because I'm, I'm, I'm in the pulpit and I kind of wrestle with this sometimes. But we need to have a proper understanding of the grace of God. And it is the only thing that we have going for us, the grace of God. Always and forever, it will always be the only thing we have going for us. Um, yes, there is pleasing God after he's saved us by grace. Yes, there is uh, works that we build on the foundation of Jesus that will burn up in the last day. And there are better things that uh, some of us will, you know, will we'll regret a lot of things that we've done in life. So others won't regret as much. Okay, so there's all of that, and God's going to sort all that out. But it, we will always only ever have the grace of God going for us. Um, and I, I think that's a, that's a healthy thing to acknowledge. Um, and I, I just want to call us back to that. Um, and then the other thing was, what was the other thing? Oh, the, the fact that there is... Uh, there's a very real enemy, and this is going to come back full force in chapter 6. As you know, you've already read. Um, but there's a very real enemy, and there is a system. There is a realm where um, people are in bondage, and it's the realm that we were we were in bondage to. But it's a very real realm. It's a reality in the spirit of bondage to Satan via human desires, the desires of the flesh, okay? And people are in bondage. And we need to realize that we were in bondage and that many, many others still are. And the wrath of God uh, is, is over their lives. Now, he has grace and he wants to deliver them from that. But that system is, is only... Uh, under the wrath of God. And there is a very definite way of life that he calls us into. So there's these two kingdoms, okay, that, that kind of get set up. There's the kingdom of darkness and self and flesh. And if you read Colossians, it kind of fleshes this out a little more. Uh, but there is a kingdom, and, and, and when in salvation, we are transferred from one kingdom to the other. And... Uh, so just to put that in, in focus, that there is, even though we don't have a visible pharaoh and taskmasters, the bondage is just as real, and it's just as hopeless, okay, and it's just as dark. A life lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, is a life that is, uh, by nature, it says, the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And so I just want to, I want to remind us of that too. So the only thing we have going for us ever is grace. And that's just, that's a given, okay? And then uh, that there is a system of bondage that exists and still does. That God is, he has saved us so that we can then call other people and join him in that work of reconciliation and calling people out of the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom of light. I want to read that part from Colossians. Colossians 1. Verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, 
asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Um, and I do encourage you to keep keep one one foot in Colossians as we as we go, because they, they really do illuminate each other uh, and work off of each other. Um, yeah, so those are the two things that I wanted to kind of keep keep before us and kind of draw out uh, for us. So um, I'm going to close in prayer, and then if anyone has anything to share, uh, feel free. If not, we can uh, open up the Zoom and people can hang out as long as they want or not. So let's pray. Father, thank you for um, your grace, God. Lord, we know that that uh, that you have saved us in a way that that no glory belongs to us. Like we sang before, Lord, salvation belongs to our God. And we just declare that to you, that we are saved because of you, and that we are not um, we are not more deserving than anyone else who is in bondage. We're not more deserving than our neighbors. Lord, we're not more deserving uh, than our co-workers. We're not more deserving than our unbelieving family members, Lord. You love them, and you love them with a great love, and you are rich in mercy toward them. And so, Lord, I pray that you would direct our hearts, um, that you would help us to be gracious people, to be merciful people in a, in a saving way, God, that we could be able to participate in, in uh, realizing the bondage and, and hearing the groans of people in bondage. And uh, Lord, that we would move with you as, you as you see that and as you know it and as you move on their behalf uh, to bring deliverance, God. Uh, Lord, we thank you and, and call you a good God. You are the God uh, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are the God who brought your people out of Egypt. And you are the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. And it's in him that we have obtained an inheritance. And we thank you for that, God. Thank you that we can call on you as Father. And we ask that the, the, the life of Jesus would increase among us. Uh, and that you would draw more people into it for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Anyone have anything to share or ask? I know that there may be some questions, and they don't have to be related to the teaching, uh, but there may be some questions about something in Ephesians 2 that you were chewing on this week. Um, Feel free to throw those out. I saw a hilarious tweet today that said, I wish that there were a, a, a English word 
for the soul sucking silence that happens when you ask a class a question over Zoom. <laughs> it, it it truly soul sucking. Anyone who's anyone who has uh, presided over a Zoom meeting knows. All right. Well, I won't. I won't belabor it. Um, this is good. I'm so uh, thankful to be in this book, and I've been so refreshed. Um, keep at it. Stick with it. Amen.